HERS can cause acute coughing in about any age of pig if they're acutely affected with the virus at that time. One of the most common times that we see PERS becoming a population problem is two to three weeks after pigs are weaned when they're mixed um, during that weaning period in nurseries. Hello, welcome to this edition of Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Beringer Engelheim. My name is Peter Best. And our guest today is Dr. Greg Stevenson, who is Professor of Veterinary Pathology in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Iowa State University in the United States. Our subject for this podcast reflects a particular area of Greg's expertise because we will be talking about the porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, PERS, and especially how an infection of the virus can lead to distinctive coughing in pigs. And after listening to this podcast, we hope you'll understand why pigs cough when infected with PERS virus and what this cough actually sounds like. Dr. Stevenson, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I understand that you're a veterinary diagnostic pathologist in the Iowa State Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. Uh, is PERS part of your everyday working life? Yes, it is. We, we take submissions from all over the United States. Uh, our laboratory does over 70,000 submissions a year, and of those submissions, 90% of them are swine. And of the swine submissions, I hazard to guess probably 40% involve PERS in one way or the other. Is this changing with time? Is it getting more than 40% or less than 40%? What's the trend today, please? <laughs> well, I think in the United States, we'd like the trend to be going down, um, but it doesn't seem to be even with area elimination uh, programs. And we're talking about coughing in the context of PERS. I must start by asking you how much attention we should pay when pigs cough. I think many swine unit managers would consider coughing to be a common occurrence among pigs in growing and finishing houses, and the one that has many possible causes. From your work, do you say that veterinary practitioners and pork producers should regard coughing as an abnormal state indicating a specific clinical condition? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we get used to pigs coughing um, uh, because respiratory disease is such a common disease in grow-finished swine. Um, but actually, different diseases cause pigs to cough in different ways, and they transmit at different speeds in barn. So it's not just how a cough sounds, but how rapidly the number of pigs coughing over time develops in a barn that can help you understand what the cause of the cough is and then treat it earlier by recognizing it. Great. So uh, I think we could start by uh, then defining what we mean by coughing. You've already discovered transmission, discussed transmission in, in the barn and, and the uh, duration and so on. Uh, what, what do we mean when we talk about coughing? Is it uh, something which is uh, very evident and happens over time, something that is an occasional animal, or what, what are we talking about here? Well, generally, 
pigs are like people. They cough when they have irritation of their airways. There are nerve endings in airways, and when those nerve endings are irritated, they will cough. Um, lots of things can cause them to cough. For example, if you have too much dust in barns, that can cause them to cough a bit. But the most common cause of coughing are different infectious agents that actually cause damage to airways or fill their airways with substances um, that would make them cough. So coughing is an indication of a less than desirable clinical, clinically healthy animal. Absolutely. Uh, is all coughing the same you indicated? It's not. No, it's not. I mean, uh, you can you can hear different pitches of cough and different uh, uh, harshness of cough. And by becoming good at listening, you can start discerning um, what is actually causing the cough. Is this, a, a, from a field veterinarian's point of view, just experience of going around enough barns and listening to enough pigs then you develop this mental memory of different cough sounds that you can discern between them? Yes, I think many veterinarians that are astute, that work with pigs a lot, will develop that sense. Is it innate in them, or is it something you can learn? No, it's something that you have to learn. I mean, to really learn it, it's not just a, an observational skill, but it's also understanding the diseases and their mechanisms so that you can put what you're hearing with what you know about a disease and start, start drawing conclusions about the cause of the cough. So would you say from a, a field vet who wants to look at this in more detail, what's the starting point? Should he stand in enough barns, as you say, but should he stand in there a, a long time or in particular areas of the production unit uh, in order to begin this process of discovering what the different coughs sound like? I think probably the most important thing is that, is that we stand and notice at least in the United States, uh, swine veterinarians uh, are responsible for tremendous numbers of animals, and everything is a hurry. So the time spent in barns often is, is looking quickly at animals, but really not, I think, spending the time to stop and listen and create the associations you need to learn from what you're hearing. So you've got to take some time. That's really yes. what it's all and, about. And notice. And notice the differences in the pitches of what you're hearing. And then remember what you've heard so that when you get a diagnosis, you can start matching the two together yes. and, and learning uh, what causes what you just heard. Right, right. I'm with you. You've, you've indicated PERS virus, and we're talking about PERS here today. It's certainly a, a, a common cause. It's a, a major cause of coughing in growing, finishing hogs in the States? Yes. I mean, it's, it's one of our primary causes of respiratory disease, probably. In fact, um, I end up doing lectures to swine veterinarians from all over the world, and I consistently ask them, what are the three major concerns they have for respiratory disease? And always, PERS is number one and either influenza or mycoplasma pneumoniae are two or three, occasionally with another organism put in there. But it's interesting because those three are significant problems worldwide, and the type of cough they produce in barns is somewhat different. And I think if a person really 
spends time learning, you can start discerning differences before you even get diagnostic testing back. So you're saying coughing due to PERS can be distinguished because it sounds different to that caused by other factors. It sounds different combined with what you observe in the animals as well as how rapidly the prevalence of coughing increases in that population. It's all of that information together that would allow you to be able to make that assessment. But yes, the sound of cough is one component. And how soon after weaning should we uh, consider PERS to be a candidate to be a cause of coughing? Uh, Immediately after weaning in in a rearing barn, for example, or would you consider the animals to be a, a bit older before you would consider PERS to be the major cause? That depends entirely upon the uh, production system on the particular farm you're talking about. PERS can cause acute coughing in about any age of pig if they're acutely affected with a virus at that time. One of the most common times that we see PERS becoming a population problem is two to three weeks after pigs are weaned when they're mixed um, during that weaning period in nurseries. I'm with you. Now, uh, you would say then uh, that uh, we should be measuring this, but what is the mechanism to give rise to this different cough or different sound of cough that you refer to? Why, Why is PERS causing different coughing sounds to any other agent? Well, it's actually the reason they sound different is because there are subtle differences in the cause of the cough based upon the way that particular organism causes damage in the respiratory tract and then how that damage translates into a cough. So, in, yes, so the mechanism is different in each, yes. in each pathogen's yes. case. You are listening to Meet the Expert a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. If you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline. But... uh, Going back to mechanisms then, please. PERS, you say, produces this particular cough by a particular mode of actual mechanism. Its effects on the airways and on the lungs and so on. Uh, could you just describe to us, uh, is this PERS acting alone or in harmony with other agents that is having this effect? Well, it, it may be beneficial to kind of back up and just start walking through how PERS causes disease. Um, and then how that disease results in a cough. Um, in re- I, could, I could respond to your question, but that's kind of a next answer after we talk about right. these well, other things. Well, let's start with, with the basics. There. Yes. What is the disease and how do we get there? Yeah, so PERS is caused by a, a small RNA virus, and uh, that virus is spread from pig to pig. It can be spread across the placenta, and a pig can get it in utero and be born with it. It can be spread from, typically, um, a few pigs will be born with it in the suckling phase, and then most of the pigs in that farrowing group will not be infected. When they're weaned and pooled together, then the pigs that are infected with the virus from a suckling age spread it to the others in the age, which is why we so often see it in those weeks following weaning. 
um, when the virus infects the pig, it infects a subset of, of uh, immune cells, the macrophages. But even among the macrophages, it infects a subset of those, those that display certain receptors on them. It's the receptors called CD163 that the PERS virus binds to. Um, those cells are in very high numbers in the lung, as well as in lymphoid tissues of the pig. So these uh, alveolar macrophages are uh, carrying this agent to receive the, the virus. It sticks to them, if, you, if I may use that term. And then what happens when it does that? What, what happens well, to the macrophages? So it sticks to the surface of the macrophage, and then it's actually, it is taken inside the macrophage, and it starts replicating itself in the macrophage. And that's at the point in time where this virus is really wicked, because it does several things. Macrophages are actually, in our body, they're kind of generals, if you will, of initiating both an immune response and an immediate inflammatory response, which helps us limit infection. So the fact that PERS virus infects the general, it's a problem. Um, because as it infects these cells, they start doing what they normally would do, but they do it um, abnormally, if you will. Um, one thing that they do is start generating and secreting molecules called cytokines that direct an inflammatory response. And this is going to get to where we get our cough initially with PERS virus, because one of the things that happens in an inflammatory response when these macrophages secrete a protein, the protein directs small blood vessels throughout the lung to increase permeability and allow fluid to run from the serum or from the blood into the air spaces of the lung. In other words, the pigs start drowning in their own fluids. Yes, it's mucus. No, it's edema fluid. Oh, it's edema. It's edema fluid. fluid. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's really just the the a, a water filtrate from the fluid portion of the blood that is that goes into the air spaces of the lung. The purpose of that normally in the body is to carry molecules from the blood that will help limit the infection. Yes. So it's a way of bringing yeah. those molecules into where there's an infection. The problem we have with PERS virus is it's not a localized infection in the lung. It's a systemic disease. So the entire lung is uniformly affected. Instead of having a little bit of fluid in a localized area of the lung that's in trouble, we end up having a lot of fluid in the whole lung, and then the pig gets in trouble because it starts drowning in its own fluid. Is the virus... Uh, uh, encouraged by the, the presence of this fluid. Why, what, can we explain why it has this effect, why, why it well, triggers the, this? It has the effect because the lung, the whole purpose of the lung is to transmit oxygen from the air into the blood of the pig. And it's that oxygen that our body uses to keep us alive. If you fill the airspace in the lung with fluid, the air can't get in. And immediately what happens is and what happens to us if we drowned in a pond of water is we suffocate from lack of oxygen. And that's what pigs will do. They suffocate because they're drowning in their own fluid. And the virus benefits from the animal suffering in that way? Well, no. So many times with these viruses, the virus benefits by replicating itself and then spreading to other pigs so it can replicate itself. But unfortunately, some of these 
pathogens, viruses, and bacteria, they do too good a job and they kill their host. Yes. Um, and in that, you know, so in that case, it's not really benefiting PERS virus to kill its host, but that is indeed the reason that we're so concerned about PERS virus because the more virulent strains indeed do kill the pigs, which is why we're all concerned as pork producers. Yes, but the the virus would benefit by being ejected or its progeny, if you like, being yes. ejected into the environment. It by would, coughing yes. or sneezing or whatever it is. Yes. It's a pig's response. Mm-hmm. And so to that extent, it is, let's say, to its advantage in that way. And that's one of the major ways that the PERS virus spreads from pig to pig, isn't it? By uh, by airborne uh, route or by by close pig-to-pig contact and so on. Close pig-to-pig contact. Actually, the most efficient method is when blood is spread between pigs. So when you, for example, wean pigs and they socialize in their new social groups, they fight and will scrape the skin of one another. That's an excellent way to spread PERS virus as blood is transmitted from pig to pig. That is the most efficient way. Another efficient way is if we, by using the same needle, treating a variety of pigs, we can transmit it with needles. But it's also transmitted through aerosol, just as you said. So as these pigs do cough and sneeze, they atomize a fine spray of droplets that contain the virus, and then the pigs in the general area will breathe that in and become infected with the virus that the, that they receive from an infected pig. Yes. And this is distinctly different, going back to the sequence you've described, it's distinctly different in the case of PERS to other causes of coughing, be it, let's right. say influenza A as an example. Well, and compared to influenza A, if we were to compare the two diseases, pigs don't cough as harshly or as often with PERS as they do with influenza A. Um, Actually, relative to different diseases, pigs don't cough as much with PERS virus as they do some other respiratory disease. Now, as much means for a long time? As frequently. uh, frequently. As frequently, yes. And the reason for this, I kind of, as I was describing this flooding of fluid in the lung, yeah. I kind of gave the worst case scenario with the pig drowning in it and actually dying. So if if we look at at virulent cases of PERS virus in a nursery, for example, and you have nearly every pig over a four-week period in the nursery become infected, the mortality that you have in the first few days of infection may be fairly low. In those pigs that die, those few that die during that those first days, those would be the one that actually had so much fluid in their lungs they drown. But in reality, most pigs don't have so much they drown, but they do have some. And when that fluid is in the lung, it's cleared out of the lung in the next few days by a few mechanisms. Lymphatics are one mechanism. They're, they're vessels in the blood designed speci- or in the lung specifically designed to clear fluid out so that they don't drown. So they start clearing fluid. But the other thing that happens, and this is where the cough comes in, some of that fluid ends up being carried up the airways. The airways are lined by cells that have little waving cilia on them, and they beat and carry the fluid from down in the depths of the lung up to the trachea and into the mouth so it can be coughed up. When you get a lot of fluid being carried, it would be similar if if you would drink a, a bit of water and then have the water run down the wrong pipe and you start coughing. 
that's what the fluid as it's moving up their airways right. does, and right. that's the source of this coughing. So if we go back to that example of you swallowing a bit of water and having a rather quick, high cough, that's what these pigs do. They tend to, to um, abdominal breathe and have their elbows extended out a little bit, and then because they have fluid there and they're, they're uncomfortable and their airways are tickling, they get this high... <laughs> Yeah. Like that, as the, as you can almost imagine, they're trying to bring fluid up out of right. their lungs. Right. And that's the kind of cough you right. hear right. Um, with purrs. Yes, yeah. Almost like a piece of straw stuck in the throat. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's but a moist version of that. Exactly. I, I mean, it's not a dry cough, one assumes. I mean, if, if uh, you know, if uh, that, these events of the fu fluid buildup uh, as you say, come into the trachea, you're going to get a, a very moist sounding sort of it will. Uh, productive cough, I think it's called yes. in human terms, isn't it? So you, you get something coming out of it. And so you get this distinctive sound, mm -hmm. and uh, it's short lived relatively in terms of frequency. Yes. It's not so frequent, and it's more distinctive because it's, it's, uh, uh, a, a wet cough that has a slightly higher pitch to it, mm -hmm. I think you said. Is that right? Yes. And so you hear that sound. What value to me as a field vet is fun is hearing that sound and recognizing the possibility, shall I say, that PERS is involved. Uh, what, what as a field vet should I be expecting uh to advising the farm well, to be doing in that case. If you're hearing this cough, is the next step to do diagnostic well, it would, procedures? It would or? be to, to determine what the cause is. Yes. You know, and if PERS would be suspected as one of the possibilities, then yes, um, one would assess the herd. And, you know, if I were a veterinarian and I heard that cough, um, and a producer that becomes more familiar with PERS, it would cause me to pause and really look at the animals and see if I see other signs that I'm familiar with with PERS. It's a piece of the puzzle, if you will. It's a useful piece of the puzzle. Yes. And it opens the door where possibly suspicion wasn't particularly there before. Yes. It's an early sign that you could be watching out for. Yes. And as I said, you know, the. That's the early type of coughing in PERS. Um, later in the infection, because PERS can predispose them to secondary bacterial pneumonias too, you can get heavier exudates, pus, if you will, building up in the lung. And as that gets in the airways, they'll, con they'll start coughing more. At that point, you're not really coughing because of PERS anymore. You're coughing because of the of the infectious disease complex in the yes. lungs that PERS initiated, yes. if you will. Yes, yeah, but it makes worse, yes. Can we go on to diagnosis then, please? Yes. Your, your diagnostics uh, would be good to talk about here. You've got an awareness of PERS virus being there because of coughing, or you suspect it is, and now you, you need information to prove it's present or involved. So what kind of diagnostics would you be recommending to test in in a finishing barn, for example? Would it be blood, so serology? Would it be oral sample, oral fluids with ropes or necros? I can't say it. Necropsies. Uh, 
what is your advice to vets, please, in terms of the diagnostics? Well, generally, when we would be suspecting PERS, we would probably be wanting to differentiate it from a whole group of differentials or other causes of respiratory disease. So I would be thinking about taking sampling that would allow me to test for all of those agents, not just PERS. Um, we would typically want to actually get samples of lung from animals that have that are affected with the clinical signs, with the coughing that we're seeing, and if some have died, then samples from those animals. Typically, we'd, we would want to have samples of lungs, um, both chilled and kept moist and sent to a lab, as well as samples of the same lungs put in 10% neutral buffered formalin so that you can look at them under a microscope. Um, we can use the fresh lung samples for various tests. The most common test used in the world now is, is real-time PCR mm. that would be used to detect PERS virus, or it could be used for influenza virus. It could be used for mycoplasma for a variety of agents in that lung. We would probably also, if the barns are fairly large, we would also use some ropes and get oral fluids because it allows us to test many, many more animals in that population and get a population sample. And taking the fluid from those ropes, we also use that and test using the PCR tests for the virus. So uh, you'd have the ropes as a matter of course in these barns and you would use a fluid sample from there if yes. you wanted to do a series of diagnostic tests because of what you'd observed. Yes. yes. And then uh, with these various tests, though, that you can do, uh, you, uh, inevitably there's time and cost considerations and so on. Uh, do, are they all helpful in arriving at the diagnosis? Or are, are you indicated some are perhaps more valuable than others? Well, what you test for and how you spend money are determined by a lot of different things. Um, one would simply be the size of the herd and the amount of, of loss or how much financial risk there is. If the financial risk is graced, then it will support a greater immediate expenditure of money to determine what the cause is so you can prevent the financial losses by spending the money early to find out what's happening. If it's a smaller herd, then in that case, one would be, want to be more practical and you would develop a set of differential diagnoses, and you would prioritize those differentials based on what seems most likely, and you would test for the most likely first in order to be the most economical. Right. In this case, if we thought it was PERS, um, the PCR tests are so sensitive, we can actually pool several samples together and run a single test. We charge in our laboratory 25 US or American dollars for a multiplex PCR test that tests for both U.S. and European PERS virus in one sample. So it's, it's fairly economical. Indeed. And this would be samples from fresh lungs, did you yes. say? And or, or from rope, whichever yeah. makes most sense. Yes. So the histology, the, the microscopic examination of the, the, uh, the other lung samples, how are they helpful, please? Well, microscopic, that's actually what I do as a trained pathologist. Um, I do um, necrops examinations. I look at tissues grossly, and then I look at them under a microscope. Um, it's important from several different perspectives. First of all, um, it allows us, based on what the lesions look like, to 
give someone a very good idea of what the cause is um, in a separate method from the PCR test. This is important if your PCR test is negative and you think that the disease should have been positive, it's nice to be able to have a test that you can confirm or deny um, whether that test was working well or not. Um, sometimes it isn't what you thought it was, and when you look at it microscopically, it helps redirect you quickly to what it actually is. Um, there are actually many reasons that we do histopathology. We do histopathology in the U.S. in our lab on a majority of our cases that we're doing PCR on. But is, do you get false positives or false negatives with PCR then? Um, there is no perfect diagnostic test. So in every diagnostic test, you have the potential for false positives and false negatives. However, the reason PCR tests are so widely used worldwide, there are many reasons they are, but they're incredibly sensitive and specific. Um, in fact, they're so sensitive that one of the challenges is cross-contamination and detection of having a false positive because you detected a virus that was in another sample and it ended up in the sample you tested. Uh -huh. That could happen at a farm level from a dirty knife. It could happen at any level on the way to a laboratory or, or even in the laboratory um, you can cross-contaminate. In our laboratory, we almost everything now is mechanized. Um, there's, a, there's a quarter million to half, dollar, half million dollar machine that you can put in almost every step if you have enough money. And that is... <laughs> A pretty good way of avoiding the cross-contamination. The primary reason that we mechanize is to prevent cross-contamination. Is this one of the major differences? Today's diagnostic procedures for PERS and a few years ago, uh, would you say this mechanization is one of the advances or are there it, others it that is, we should be aware of? It is in especially larger laboratories. You can still do PCR in a very small laboratory using hand pipetters, um, but when you're doing them by hand, you have an increased chance of human error, of, yeah. of cross-contaminating with a little drop from right. a pipette going to a second sample right. well. Right. And your $25 cost, I mean, this mechanization, does that lower costs in, in, because well, of the ability to do things more quickly? And, so and just the sheer volume. Yeah. We, we, yeah. Run, we run about a, a million and a half tests a year. So that's, it's the sheer volume and yeah. like anything else <laughs> like large pig barns creates lower cost um, large diagnostic laboratories with large testing volumes gives you the opportunity to lower cost through mechanization and are you looking at this stage whether PERS virus is present yes or no or are you also including in your diagnostics trying to determine what sort of PERS virus what variant what type might be uh, present. Yes. Um, actually, let me answer your question in two parts because sure. one of the challenges with PERS virus is that PERS virus is unusual in terms, in, in, let me compare it with influenza virus, for example. PERS virus, when it infects a pig, um, it is easily detectable in all of the tissues and in the serum of that pig for at least a month. And then it can be detected in lymphoid tissues sometimes up to three months, which is really unusual, where influenza, when it affects a pig, typically is calm and gone in about a week and a half. 
One of the problems we have with PERS virus is that we can detect it in a group of animals um, frequently. But the question is, just because we detected it, it is, is it actually the cause of the immediate clinical respiratory disease we're dealing with today? It's almost ubiquitous in, in that sense. Right. right. Well, because it infects them for such a long yes. time, you could be finding the tail end of a prior yes. infection, yes. and it may not even be the cause of the respiratory disease you're looking at. So we do a lot of different things to make that determination. One is the reason we want to look at ill an animal that's sick itself, and we want to look at the tissues microscopically, we want to know how much virus was in that animal at the time and we want to see the lesions that correspond with that amount of virus. And then we, we can make a judgment. This isn't just an animal that's infected. This is an animal that is diseased currently, and it's causing acute respiratory disease. This is likely to be the cause of what we're seeing in the herd right now. Okay. And this is something which is developed over time that one has these procedures to do yes. it. And the recognition with PERS, because of its persistence, if that's the correct term in this case, it, it's more applicable because of that. It, you need to know what's happening today yes. and what's actually caused an effect today uh, as a result. And would uh, you say that uh, we would be therefore at an ideal situation now in terms of identifying if PERS is present and what it is doing to the animal and being in a position to take corrective measures as a result? Or are there gaps in our procedures, in our techniques that still could be improved? Um, we're constantly trying to improve them. Um, the, the other part of that question you asked a minute ago is, is whether there are different kinds of PERS viruses and yes. different ways we yes. differentiate yes. them. And the answer to that is very much so. PERS virus is a, is a master at mutating. And as a result, there's a tremendous variation in the virulence of the strains of PERS virus that are in locales and in the world as a whole. Um, in our laboratory, um, one of the challenges is that we can detect modified live vaccine virus that's been used in animals, and it will spread to other animals. And we'll detect that virus um, in non-diseased pigs. So we have to be able to differentiate MLV vaccine virus that we've detected using our diagnostic tests from actually, we in our, in our laboratory call them wild type field strain viruses that are actually pathogenic. And then among the pathogenic ones, there's a wide variety of virulences. So our, most of our herds in the US are large, very large now companies, and we actually keep track by doing sequencing of their strains using high throughput sequencers, um, we keep track of each individual strain that they have in herds and flows, and we keep what's called a dendogram of their different strains so they can historically look at the number of strains of PERS virus that they've had in their herd and make an assessment whether their outbreaks are coming from internal PERS virus strains or whether they came externally and it's a sign that they have a breakdown in biosecurity. They've therefore demonstrated the value of doing this, quite obviously. Yes. Uh, I mean, I can see that you can do it. it. I was wondering, you know, the what if, you know. Yes, it's because our systems are large and because we talk about 
not just different sites of production in a swine system, but the swine system will have what are called multiple flows. And that means that from the seed stock to the, to the sow farms, to the locations of the nurseries and or wean to finish barns, they'll try and match health status vertically through the entire flow of animals. And they keep track and name or number their flows. Um, and in our system, when we get samples from them, they're identified by GPS locales that tells them which flow they're in. And they actually get their information and catalog it um, so that they can follow the viruses and, and what's happening through the flows to match their health status through the flows. So for our laboratory, um, sequencing these viruses um, is not quite as common as detecting them, but we sequence several hundred a day. I think we should finish quite soon, but I will ask you if I may. We, we've got an audience composed of field veterinarians, yes. veterinary practitioners. Would you mind just giving me a, a take-home message for the people listening to this podcast today? We've covered quite an amount of ground in this regard. What, what would you say you know, is the, the take-home message that they should bear in mind after uh, listening to this podcast? Well, if, if uh, veterinary practitioners here are any light, anything like the ones that I'm used to where I am in, in Iowa and in the United States, there's a wide variety of competencies and different people tend to be good at different things. I would say for, for those people who haven't taken the time to stop and really listen when they're in swine barns, that that along with what they're used to seeing and feeling is really useful information in creating differential diagnoses for respiratory disease and arriving at an early presumptive diagnosis. And if we're successful, we'll be hearing less coughing in the future and we'll be all making some more money, I hope, out of the hogs we produce. We hope so. Thank you, Dr. Stevenson. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to a Meet the Expert podcast presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. Please note that other podcasts in the series are becoming available. Stay tuned and thank you for listening.